All right. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. I am extremely uh, honored, humbled, uh, grateful, and gracious to have with us Mr. Kurt Jaimungle, the one and only from Theories of Everything. Before we delve into all of this, brother, how are you today? Thank you so very much for coming on, and uh, how are things on your end? I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for the plaudits. I appreciate it. I, I'm doing moderately well. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, I, I, I figure even myself relative to everything going on in the world, it's to say moderately well is is better than, than most, in my opinion. Um, but with that said, I do want to I do have, uh, you know, a handful of questions uh, for you, sir, that you've been so gracious to, to come on and, and discuss and, and have answered. Uh, but first and foremost, Relative to all the discussions you've had, the experiences you may or may not have had, whether it's talking with people, individuals, or whether it's, you know, um, interacting with just your environment in your day-to-day -day life, specifically the, we could say, UAP, high strangeness type phenomenon, wh what are you, where do you stand currently as it pertains to the, I guess, hypothesis or theory that you would subscribe to the most per se, at least at this moment. I want to be clear that, you know, even like myself, our perspectives change as new information is, is you know, uh, discovered and all of that. But in this current point in time, what do you reside with the most? For example, there are some that, you know, postulate electric universe theory, some that postulate um, many different, you know, simulation theory, uh, you name it, game theory, all, all of that. Where would you land in that regard on that spectrum? I think it would be better if I, if you give me some options and I tell you yes or no on them, sure. because I don't, it's difficult for me to pull them out from the void. So you mentioned the electrical universe. Do you mind? Yeah, absolutely. The concept of, of, of quantum dielectric, you know, electromagnetism, um, all of that, there, sort of that everything that the, the core archetypal foundation of this universe or reality in which we are living in is comprised of, I guess we could say um, the, the perspective of, zero point energy um there being a fundamental force that is always vibrating per se in what we could call you know quantum okay. electrodynamics okay so much like yourself my views on this change on a week to week maybe month to month basis for sure right and i would say no to the electric universe i would say no to the simulation hypothesis i yes I, i'll just say no to those but I, what else are there? What other well, options are there? There's there's quite a few. I mean, there's so many different ones. But I, I before we go on with a, a bit more of the list, just curious, why uh, um, why say no to the simulation hypothesis? In, I'm asking in a good faith manner, just trying to understand where you're coming from in that regard. I don't think the simulation hypothesis is well formed. I think that if what one is doing as a proponent of those ideas are developing or making a living by developing these extravagant ideas, which are couched in scientific terminology so that they can earn an air of credibility among their peers and the science and the public as being these sagacious, inventive public intellectuals. When I, I see them as, as being about science fiction or philosophical musings, which use physics terminology, but don't bother to cite physics papers or provide a mechanism. I see them as masquerading as physics, but they're philosophical musings. So I don't, I don't know right. much. I, 
I, there's right. so many assumptions that go into the simulation hypothesis. There's a variety of assumptions, right? And and any and almost all of them are dubious. So an exponential curve that continues with some rate of progress. Well, let's say you made, I don't know, let's say you made $100 today and then $200 tomorrow. And you think, wow, I can make $2 trillion in the future. Well, what's to say that there's not some physical limit? Now, in that case, maybe there's not a physical limit, but there's a physical limit in the sense of information. There's only a certain amount of information that can be contained on the earth or contained in your head. Right. So there's an actual finite number there. There's also the, I don't see why it would be the case that the second level of the simulation can develop a simulation. I can see that the first level may, but I don't see why the simulation can develop a simulation. I also don't see why one can't jump out of the simulation if it's all information. I also don't see why the laws of physics are those that can be made computable in an algorithmic manner. In fact, there's some bounds on that that have been experimentally looked for right. because there'd be certain symmetries that'll be broken, certain rotational symmetries. And, and there's no evidence of it. So, so I'm unsure. I, I see it as a, I see it as the, the, the ideations of a godless people trying to find God. Got you. Okay. So now just curious. And again, I, I ask with the utmost respect and in a good faith manner, you, you would, would you apply this as well to the electric universe theory, that same type of concept, not as much substantiation, not as many, too many loop, uh, sort of gaps or voids relative to the, the, the academic literature that can't substantiate this. I don't know. I just don't understand what the electric universe theory is. Got you. Got you. Cool. So sometimes right. people will, will send theories and then they'll use certain terms like quantum and electric and dielectric and electrogravitics, electrogravitics and so on. But I, and, but I don't understand what they mean when they say that. So they understand what they mean and I just need to do some more research. Okay, I see what you're saying, because I want to I also want to make it clear uh, for those that are going to be watching or listening to this later on pertaining to the, we could say the the ideological subscription of people wanting to check off those confirmation bias boxes, and then making those leaps without actually having any type of evidentiary, um, you know, ground proof or experimentation or ground evidence to, to, to at least suggest a probable, you know, outcome being whether you know the electric universe theory or simulation theory so in other words would you um i guess we could say would you be more open to such theories or proposals if there was more academic literature that would sort of fill those voids of the unexplained in in your perspective no, i'm entirely open to it already i just don't understand it so i just need to learn more it's a defect on my part most likely oh most things are a defect you. on my part Oh, well, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I, I'd give you more credit than you may be, uh, than you may be saying there, but I, I hear you, man. I hear you. And I, I appreciate that a ton because I also, to your point, I know there's also a lot of instances where the terms, for example, quantum consciousness, they're thrown around quite often. And it's like, you know, again, consciousness means one thing to a philosopher, whereas it means something else to a mathematician, to a, a physicist, perhaps, right. Um, from ontological and deontological perspectives, that seems to be something that, uh, that that everyone kind of throws around and it's like okay what precisely do we mean by that and um 
And with that said, I did want to ask as well, too, pertaining to just your overall thoughts on uh, UAP, because I did want to go through some more uh, list of, of theories, if you will. But I think we can kind of go throughout the, the, the recording, if, if that's all right, because it actually falls in line with a lot of the questions here. What are your thoughts currently on UAP? The, the, the potential, let's just say hypothetically, let's presume that there was a... Um, there's a there there, if you will, whether, you know, what is observed is something that is that of a physical substrate or something that is of a um, more of an optical epigenetic type observation. What what do you personally, uh, I guess we could say lean towards at this point in time? And to be clear to the audience, perspectives can always change and adapt and what have you. But at least as of the day we're recording this. I think there's something physical about it because there are craft associated with it. By the way, Dave, for the first time, I've never seen a craft. And for the first time in my life, maybe an hour ago, I was looking at the moon in Toronto because the moon, for whatever reason, is visible right now. Yeah. And then I saw two what looked like craft. And then I, I was getting my phone out and I couldn't film it. So when people say, hey, you should film these, it's extremely difficult to do so. But anyway, they turn out to be birds. I think they turned out to be birds because I saw some flapping, at least in one. And my wife was saying, babe, it's stop a... <laughs> Right, right. But anyway, I just thought that that was a hilarious coincidence because I've never seen one in my entire life. At least I don't think so. Anyway, so if you don't mind repeating the question, what is behind the UAP? So something physical, I think so. And then some people say it's consciousness related. Yeah, that's a nebulous term. I think what they mean is that that they get injected with certain emotions or certain intents. Intent. So not not intense, but well, the plural of intent. Right. And and apparently some people can summon them via some meditative technique like CE5. So I think that that's what people mean when they say that there's a consciousness-related aspect. I think that the world may not be... There's something called dualism, so there's mind and physical yes. matter. Right. I think that there may be something like trialism or, or a trichotomy or a, a four or a five or a six or multiple, maybe... It, peaks at 12 there seems to be something special about the number 12 <laughs> so maybe all that we can interact with is just two the physical and the and the and the spiritual or the consciousness level and maybe there are many other levels got you now th this actually speaks to me about speaking of going through different you know hypotheses and what have you uh, professor nicholas jisson's thick time concept and I was wondering your thoughts on that. Do you do you um, humbly dismiss that that postulation, that hypothesis, or do you think there is something there? Because I think that there seems to be um, something pertaining to a different observational state, particularly again, forgive me for being overly vague, but in a quantum manner, uh, if you will. Do you? And it seems that Mr. Professor Jisson subscribes to that pertaining to. I've always used the example, uh, thanks to your interview with him. If you know, we say it's gonna. If I say, Kurt, it's going to rain tomorrow, I'm either going to be correct or incorrect, but then we have a potentially third uh, option, if you will, which is a an indeterminate option. It has not yet to be decided, if mm -hmm. you will. Now, to what extent is one making that decision that then, uh, forgive me for rambling, but that then speaks to, you know, uh, Sir Roger Penrose's work of the difference between AI and consciousness, if you will. But s pertaining to sticking with Mr. Nicholas Jisson's thick time concept, what what do you make of that personally? So you asked me, do I dismiss that idea? And I would say no. And virtually that would be my answer for almost any idea you pose to me. I don't dismiss it. And the reason is that I've been humbled 
I've been, I've been shaken to my core from many beliefs that I used to think were quote unquote obvious and solid that I no longer, I tend to not use those words like obvious. Right. Anyway. Okay. So the question was, what do I think of his thick time concept? So his thick concept, thick time concept isn't he admitted this it's i mean this is his own words they're not it's not specific yet it's uh it's it's an avenue for exploration so it comes from something called and you don't need quantum mechanics in this you classical physics is indeterminate even though people don't like to think like that but you don't need quantum mechanics you just need something called intuitionist logic so if you know the difference, people probably know what classical logic is, and that's the logic of Aristotle. It's what most people think of as logic. That is something is either true or not true. And that then you can have something called the explosion principle, where if you have a proposition that is both true and not true, then you can prove any other proposition. So if you think that it's going to both rain and not rain, then you can prove that there's a horse in front of you. Well, other than the fact that I have a large nose, that there's, there's something false about that there's a horse in front of you, or at least we would think so. So in intuitionist logic, you remove what's called the law of the excluded middle. So you no longer have the principle of explosion, which means in mathematics, you can't prove by contradiction, which means many of the proofs that we do as students don't work. But regardless, <laughs> the, the point is that when one uses intuitionist logic to because physics is based in mathematics and mathematics is based in logic. So what happens if you meddle with the logic? Okay, well, we assumed it's classical logic, let's change it to intuitionist logic. You get different outcomes. So for example, you get that that the time, like he called it, the time is is thick, that the continuum the continuum is quote unquote viscous. And so one way of thinking about that is that I I I don't I don't think this is the correct way of explaining it. But let's imagine that you had the number. This is difficult. Sorry, man. I don't mean to pose such questions. That... No, 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 no. It's 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 simple. It's I mean, sorry. It's simple. It's it's simple. When explained from a certain vantage point. So let's say you have two point zero one. Okay. So let's imagine that characterizes the present somehow. The number two point zero one. Sure, sure. But there, but there are several two point zero ones everywhere. So then, are they all the same? Well, in the, at the next level, two point zero one can be two point zero one two, and then for somewhere else, it could be two point zero one three. Right. And so you would say they diverged when at one point they were the same. And so you tried to pull out one point, but you managed to pull several points. And so the present, technically, if someone is interested. in if someone knows mathematics, the present isn't measure zero. So we often think of the present as being a point, but he would say that the present doesn't have measure zero, which fits with our intuition. Actually, it fits with our, with some of our intuition, but not the more Eastern spiritual intuitions, which which suggest that all there is is the quote unquote now. Nicholas would say that the now quote unquote is blurred. And I would, I'm interested in taking Jason's concept a bit farther and suggesting not only is the future open, but the past is open too. So that's a bit strange because what does it mean? We often think that the past is fixed, but I think that automatically assumes something like physicalism or materialism. And I'm not sure if that's the correct 
if that's the correct foundation. Mm. So when you say the now is blurred, or that's something that that Nicholas would 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 postulate or propose. That's interesting. When you say blurred, and I again, I don't mean to put words in your mouth or Professor Jissen's, but would this speak to that of the concept of expansion and contraction, so to speak? That constant fluctuating, uh, I guess you could say, sort of like an elastic band. The now is constantly, we could say, expanding and contracting, if you will, relative to one's perception. If that if that makes sense. I don't know. So something interesting is that right now okay you heard me say that i'm not a particular fan of the more new age types who like to use the word quantum and inject it and suggest right. that whatever mystical insight that they have can be contingent on quantum field theory for example sure when, by the way, quantum field theory, it's a misnomer to call it a field. And then many times you'll hear it's like waves and so on. And the, the whole universe is waves. That irks me. But but it shouldn't. That's just a bias of mine. Now, here to help to justify their side, sometimes physicists have taken words that... So I'm saying right now, I don't, I'm not a fan of people who are on the spiritual side misappropriating, quote-unquote, misappropriating physics terms to prove, quote-unquote, their propositions because... Oftentimes they don't understand the physics and then they'll just use some flowery metaphor, but pretend that it's, it has some grounding in scientific in science because it's using scientific terminology. They'll throw an abstract in there type thing, an abstract yes. definition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you've seen this. I'm sure you, you know, almost precise, precisely what I'm referring to <laughs> now, or more specifically, I'm having a difficult time putting the words to the thoughts, which are nebulous. Okay. So the thoughts, so the, so what I'm saying is that there's the spiritual side who adopts the physics terminology in order to give some credence to what they're saying. Sure. I think that's, I don't think that they should do that. And one of the reasons is that, well, what if quantum mechanics turns out to have a prosaic explanation, then are you going to abandon all of the, all of your ties to consciousness in it and the observer effect and so on? Mm. Well, well, if what you're doing is you're grounding your spirituality in that, well, what happens to me, it's like worshiping an idol and you should worship God. You're worshiping some instantiation. Right. Okay. Anyway, but the physicists have done the same where they've taken the word energy, which used to mean something. And then they have given it an explicit definition. And then when some of the more new age types say, well, it's all energy, or we have the same, we're on the same quote unquote wavelength. Well, then the physicists will say, yeah, but that doesn't fit the correct definition. However, the physicist is not realizing that they're the ones that have quote unquote stolen the word. So you've mentioned time stretching and so on. Right. Well, when you think about the development or what time meant, time was clearly a word that was used prior to physics because physics is only a few centuries old, or let's say a few millennia old for if you want to abstract what physics means into natural philosophy. Okay. So time was something that was amorphous and voluminous, even at its center, it's not precise. So our time can be expanded and contracted. Like you mentioned, you wait in line and time feels like it's, it's lasting for quite some, quite some time. Right. And then when something fun is happening, then you feel like time is occurring quickly. And, and there are several definitions of time. And then the physicists came up, 
physicist, quote unquote, the scientist, quote unquote, came along and said, let's capture one of those definitions of times. So the cycles of the earth around the sun. Okay, then let's truncate that to the cycles of the seasons. Okay, let's try truncate that to the cycles of the day. And let's truncate that further and further and further until you get seconds and then what the operational definition of time is, which is a light clock. And then we say that's the quote unquote definition of time. But our definition of time was contingent on something else. And then what you're saying is what you're suggesting in this expanding and contracting is to go back to the original definition. And I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of that. Well, anyway, this is to justify some of the, some of the uses, usage of extremely specific terms from physics in a different manner, because physics is actually stolen in a sense, certain words. Mm. Gotcha. I see what you're saying. Okay. So with that said, I did to, to sort of add on to that and to lean into that, that sort of subject of, of, uh, of prominence, what do you, um, what is your take, uh, Kurt on this concept of, I guess we could say randomness versus indeterminism, particularly the perspective held by, uh, professor, uh, Sir Roger Penrose, uh, specifically, and please interject if I'm incorrect in what I'm about to state here. Um, because I, I may be, I may be wrong, but this concept of how rant, like how consciousness as Sir Roger Penrose states is in his humble perspective, non-computational pertaining to the idea of, I know about a month back, relative to the time we're recording this, uh, Jordan Peterson had a conversation with, with him, and they talked about how, with respects of viewing randomness in particular, you have to have a set of uh, preset functions or um, outcomes, if you will, that are then put into, for example, a computer program that then selects the outcome uh, afterwards. Whereas Sir Roger Penrose seems to be stating that he doesn't, claim to know what consciousness is but rather he seems to be leaning towards what he feels it isn't if that makes sense and he feels consciousness is not that that there is not a, a preset of outcomes that are going to be you know regardless of what occurs say there's five outcomes of any particular event relative to the the dissemination of the consequences of the actions within that event um he believes that this con the idea of consciousness is is coming from Forgive me for being overly vague here. Elsewhere, do you do yeah. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, to restate what you're saying, it's please because if, I, if I messed up, yeah. So I don't know what the difference between indeterminacy and random is, other than other than perhaps a lack of knowledge. So you can say that it's unclear whether or not someone will open the door behind you or to the side of you. But it, in a sense, it's determined. It's just that you lack the knowledge, so you can view it as if it's random. So let's just say there's true randomness, and then there's randomness, which is a, which comes as a result of our ignorance. So let's just talk about true randomness. Sure. Okay. Actually, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about computability sure. and non-computability. So what's being referred to by Roger Penrose is that there seems to be an aspect of the human mind which is non-computational. You'll hear plenty of people like Yosha Bach and Stephen Wolfram talk about that the universe, including our mind, because that's in their model, a subset of the universe, that the universe is algorithmic and moves and progresses forward in a step-by-step -step fashion. What the algorithm is, who knows? But sure. there existed. Now, Roger Penrose would say, if you look at something like Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which says, or one of Gödel's incompleteness theorems, which says that 
which which says that for any first order logical system which is quote unquote powerful enough to encode the natural numbers so this is all somewhat technical and then you have to what the heck does it mean powerful enough is that even a math term but <laughs> this can be made precise that there exists certain truths within that system that cannot be proved from within sorry certain truths of that first order logical system that cannot be proved from the set of axioms and the rules of inference and so on however we can see that it's true so then you wonder well how the heck can we see that it's true but it can't prove it well what if our minds are being generated by something like a computer well then what if we were able to see this the quote-unquote source code then we could find potentially some truth because it's a first first order logical system and there are extensions to this by the way it doesn't have to be first order okay so there it's but let's just imagine it's a first sure. order logical system then we can find a truth within our own source code that can't be proved within the system yet we can see that it's true but we're a part of the system so one lies one runs into a contradiction there and that in penrose's mind implies that the mind itself is not doing something computational there's something non-computational about it because we can see truths that are we can see truths about an algorithmic system that that system can't see right so thus our minds can't be algorithmic that system can't produce it yeah Okay, so what was the question, Dave? If you don't mind repeating. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just your, uh, you know, your general perspective on the uh, Sir Roger Penrose's, you know, indeterminism versus randomness, where he postulates that um, consciousness is non-computational. Um, and it seems, if I could add very quickly to what you just said, I, I don't want to add this to the question, but as a quick side commentary, and you're more than welcome to address this if you wish, the, I've been stating particularly on, on my channel as well with my audience that, that knows the show, uh, we've been looking lately at, for example, the Tribonacci sequence, where it is a, a you know, a, a succession from the Fibonacci sequence, but what I find quite peculiar to your point, Kurt, is that the Tribonacci sequence is harder to produce than it is to prove. And what's interesting is that that speaks to me from a set of um, contextually based observations of what you were just saying, for example. We can see the result in which something would, if it were to be producible, would have. But when we try and put it in the into the computer, it can't be computed or produced. So uh, just your overall take on, the again, the idea of um, consciousness being non-computational and how that, how we can maybe speculate or hypothesize a set of uh, solutions relative to being able to, you know, move forward from that point, because that seems to be quite a sticking point in which it, whether philosophers or physicists or even computer scientists seem to be, um, I, I don't want to say stuck on per se, but really taking a lot of time to, to analyze. And I think rightfully so. Okay. So I can, I, like I mentioned, I'm not, I'm not sure what Penrose meant when he said indeterminacy versus randomness. Sure. So I'll just speak on the hypothesis of the quote-unquote strong AI. Have you heard of this? Yes, yes. Yep. Okay. So if you don't mind, can you tell the audience, or do you want me to tell the audience uh, what the strong AI is? Please, if that's hypothesis. all right. Yes, yes, please. Okay, so it's that if there's a computer that sufficiently emulates human behavior enough, like a Turing test, for example, then it is conscious. Mm-hmm. So there are some issues with that. Now, one, one issue is that 
let's imagine, Dave, we can place your entire brain into a book. And it would be a huge, huge book. It'd be larger than this entire building and perhaps even a city block. But sure. conceivably, it could be placed, maybe maybe not, but conceivably, it could be placed in, in some finite space. Okay, then what if in that book, you can pose any question to that book, just like you can pose a question to a computer like Lambda, for example, or, or GPT-3 and so on. So you can pose a question to it. And through following some careful leaf litting, and going through the papers and instructions it's painfully slow, but you can do this. You can arrive at some answer. Okay, let's imagine that. that that's a sure. That's a yep. thought experiment. That's an extremely slow version of a computer, but it's it's essentially what a computer is doing. Then, then what's conscious there? Is it the book that is conscious? So is Dave the book? If I asked it a question, I said, "Hey, how's it going?" Then you said, "Great, man." And then I said, "So." So what are we talking about today? And then you said indeterminacy versus randomness and so on by, by leafleting through this. Is the book conscious? Now, what happens if no one reads the book? Is the book then conscious? What happens if two people are reading the book at the same time? What happens if we don't read the book, but instead we, we transcribe it with x-rays? So we view it from some other planet and then we put it onto a computer there. Does that book become conscious? Does, does it know when it's being skimmed right, through? Right. These are some, these sound like inane questions to, uh, to the, perhaps the average person, but people who believe in the strong AI view take this seriously and say that somehow the book is conscious, but it's not clear to me, when is it conscious under what conditions and, and what would happen if you replaced a, a page in that book, just one page in that book, does it mean that that's an entirely new book? Is it an entirely new consciousness? Mm. I, so, so. So I would say that the strong AI position has this to contend with and many other thought experiments. There's something interesting. So there's the Turing test, but to me, I don't see the Turing test as a, as a, well, I see the Turing test as less of a test of the computer and more of a test of ourselves. It's a test of our own model of our self model. So for example, if you gave a Tamagotchi to a five-year-old, you would imagine that the five-year-old would think that the Tamagotchi is alive, but we don't think of that as a testament to the prowess of the computer in the Tamagotchi, but rather as a limitation to the five-year-old. So when people are saying quote, someone quote unquote pass or some computer passes the Turing test, we could see that as that just means that we haven't developed an articulated enough self-model. That man that thank you so much that that's i'm i'm truly uh, on a personal note i'm actually in that same sort of line of thought in that regard with you there that's that that idea of again what's to what extent if it was observed from different states of of observability relative to you know where that computer is if you will to what extent can we even claim that it's that it's conscious during the state or transition of the computation but um thank you so much for that and moving on i did want to ask i guess there, there may be a bit of a relation in this regard uh depending to what extent we we um we hypothesize and, and observe this at but uh mr um salvatore pays um and the the you know the ufo navy patents and all of this uh, first and foremost is there anything that you um took from that that interview or conversation with mr pays that that sort of um i don't want to say um 
enlightened you, but rather made you, um, again, because that's quite a vague term used these days, but made you sort of reobserve um, or rethink a particular, uh, I guess we could say, uh, set of how physics is observed in certain ways, per se, pertaining to how he was, for example, he was saying, uh, Kurt, this, it keeps going back to this Planck scale, this center point, if you will. What what if anything did you did you take from that? Whether what what were you thinking in real time, if you can recall, or even afterwards? What what did you think like after that conversation? In real time, what I was thinking was, I'm not sure what that means. I don't know what that means. I don't understand what that means. I don't I don't know why you're using the terms in this manner. Now, what he's referring to is something called the Ashtakar bounce. Actually, it's not. I don't know if it's called that, but Ashtakar, who's a physicist, who is a, a brilliant physicist who should be on the ranks of of Feynman and Wheeler, but people who are not a part of physics don't know his name. So hopefully that can change because I'll be interviewing him shortly. Ashtakar has this idea from loop quantum gravity and apparently just falls out of the equations. It doesn't, you don't require extra postulates that when there's enough energy at the when there's enough energy to create a black hole that somehow you no longer get an attractive force, but a repulsive one. And then in loop quantum cosmology, this means that the big bang wasn't actually a, the beginning of the universe, but was the contraction of a previous universe, which bounced to create ours. Because then when you have it contract, there's a force that then pushes it away. And, and there are ways of getting around the singularities of black holes because of this, because you wonder, well, what's, a, what's at the center of a, what is a black hole? Is it of infinite density? Because it's of, well, is it of infinite density? You get into problems of infinities in regular general relativity, but not in, in loop quantum gravity. So what he's referring, what Pius is referring to is Ashtakar's idea of the, of the bounce. I need to well, I am studying this, but I need to study it some more. That's my next interview. So, so I, but I, I don't know if what, by the way, you want to know what did I take away from Sal's interview the most? I, I took away, what I took away most was about him as a person. He inspires me because he said, because he's so criticized excoriated mm. by so many people and then he said i think he listed two or three actual critics maybe eric davis was one of them hal put off was another and then i said what do you think of them then he said well they don't think much of me but i i hope that they can get their work known i don't think any less of them and then you see this heartbreak in him and i felt firstly i felt bad and then i felt extremely touched that he could have an enemy some enemy, let's say, and and show love and forgiveness to them. And that's not easy to do. So that inspires, inspired and inspires me. And that's what I took away most of this, despite all the physics in that episode. Wow. It was the heart. Right, right. I hear I hear you 100% on that. And one last thing before moving on from uh, from uh, Mr. Pais and his his work and his his, his uh, obviously his very popular uh, Navy patents and all of this. Um, do you find per se that when he speaks on, for example, this sort of um, 
again, forgive me if I'm making a bit too much of a, a leap here or a jump, but with, from a, the perspective of physics, when he talks about how the, the craft is voiding the space-time metric, do you find that to be... Um, how can I say this? I, I don't want to say... Um, uh, not provable, but theoretically possible? Like tenable. Yeah, yeah. I Again, I don't understand what's meant because from the papers that I read of his, he didn't use any space-time metric, is what it's called, space-time metric engineering. Now, someone like Jack Sarfati does, and Hal Putoff does, and I haven't had a chance to look in their work into their work, at least not into any detail. So I wasn't sure if he was referring to their work. But recall, anyone can say anything. It's, it's difficult in real time to assess someone's claims. It's mm. difficult even when it's in a paper to assess one's claims. So my brother's a professor of, of, my brother's a professor of mathematical finance in the University of Toronto right here. And for him, even a paper in his own field, which is extremely narrow within the field of mathematical finance is high algorithmic, high frequency algorithmic tra trading. It's something even within that. I, I don't even recall the, the subfield. Even within his subfield of a subfield, it takes him an hour or more, many several hours to go through a single paper. And that's of something that's extremely rigorously defined. So when someone sends me or gives me a patent and says, well, what do you make of this? I don't know. I don't think anyone will patent assessors can pat people who work at the the patent office can they make they make an assessment they make a a judgment but it's not it's not irref it's not irrefragable it's not undeniable it's it's difficult so especially when sal is telling me something in real time about physics i don't know i need to see the equations and then i need to study them and then i need to think is this not only mathematically consistent but then physically realizable Got you. And I, I appreciate that. That's I appreciate that a ton because there are many people that, uh, uh, without getting specific or anything like this, and no disrespect to anyone out there, but many that will just sort of jump to an immediate like, no, yes, or, you know, something like this, which right, speaks right, that yep. state of duality, which I, I appreciate you you making so prominent at the beginning of our, our conversation. Um, now, I, I did want to ask your, your take on... I know this may be quite a broad topic, but the concept of entropy per se, and this concept of, uh, again, scalability and, you know, contextual states of what's called, you know, chaos or randomness and the, the not, not the legitimacy, but the potentiality of entropy not being as random as we may think on the surface. What, what do you take, if, if any, what do you take away from that in any regard? I know entropy is quite a broad topic, so forgive me for not narrowing in, but... Okay, firstly, let's think about what entropy is, and then sure. let's distinguish it from randomness. So when someone talks about randomness in mathematics, they have in mind a probability distribution. So you've seen bell curves and so on. Those are like probability distributions. And associated with each probability distribution is an entropy. What, what people tend to do, and again, this was, this is my... This, this is something that I observe is that people tend to take the word entropy and equate it with chaos and order and disorder. But I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see that, that, that doesn't comport with the physical definition. And the reason is that if you, if you pour milk into coffee, 
and you see its turbulence, you think, well, that's extremely chaotic. And then you stir it, and then you and then you see it's uniform. Then you say, well, this is extremely ordered. Actually, that ordered state has the highest entropy, and the turbulent flow has the has a bit of a lower entropy. Right. So, so this association between order and disorder and entropy is dubious and false, much of the time. Conflated as well, potentially. Yes. Yeah. So then, the idea that cause does not need to necessarily come before effect. It's just ah, okay. Yeah, this idea of again rearranging the the order in which things are observed by us, if uh -huh. that makes sense. So, like uh -huh. for example, if I say, you know, um. I'm going to I'm going to drop this pen. The cause is that I've I've had it here and the effect is that again it's going to it's going to go like this. It's going to drop. But yeah. there's the film Tenet postulates a theoretical physics which is the, speculates that say I put my hand here the pen is now on the ground but I think that I'm going to pick it up and then the pen zoops back into my hand because cause didn't need to come before effect. That's mm -hmm. just how we view it. If, mm -hmm. if, and your your thoughts on on that overall inverting an object's entropy. Ah, mm. uh, so to me, this is a this is a question about time, and my thoughts on time. I I don't have many formulated thoughts on it. I can give some buzzwords for people who want to research this. Please. So there's someone called Julian Barber, and then John Petit. I don't recall his last name, that may be his first and middle name, who have developed this model called the Janus point, which which has to do with, which, ha which is an explanation for the arrow of time. And I'll be speaking to John and perhaps even Julian Barber at some point soon. So they suggest that in in a similar manner that Ashtakar suggests that the universe came from a contraction and then the the singular point from the past is actually the, a middle point of two faces that are outward Julian Barber would say that that's like the two the twin faces of this I think not Julian Barber I think this is John's or Jean's Petit's model but then Julian Barber explicated it and that they're two Janus Greek gods. I believe they're Greek or Roman gods with faces that are pointed opposite directions and they call the meeting point, the Janus point. And so the big bang, what we call the big bang is actually the Janus point. And then there's Janus cosmology. So I'll be researching that. And that has to do with time. And then one way to think about the low entropy, quote unquote, low entropy state of the universe prior, which gives rise to the arrow arrow of time is rather than thinking of it as a, place of low entropy to think of it as a place of a particular initial condition okay so what does that mean hmm. questions about entropy and time and and what what are called again another buzzword closed time-like curves mm. and by the way there are solutions to einstein's equations closed time-like curves aren't excluded there they are permissible so for example girdle has a metric which many people which you're never taught but Gödel has a space-time metric solution, so a solution to the Einstein equations that incorporate a closed time-like curve. Anyway, it's it, I'm not averse to the to thinking of 
different models of cause and effect. And by the way, when people think of cause in physics, just so you know, it's not a physical notion. The more that one examines physics, the more one thinks or gets the idea that cause is illusory. Now, I'm not one of those people. It just means that it's not a physical model, at least not yet, or maybe it's not a physical concept, the concept of cause, even though we think so. Right. It, the reason why is you just have a system, then you evolve it. And so what's it, what's the cause of what? It's, it's unclear. Right. Virtually everything is the cause of... So when you drop that pen, the entire universe was the cause of that pen dropping, right. not just your hand, because there were preconditions to your hand and your thought and so on. And then there were the influence of the air molecules and so on and gravity, which pulls it down and so on. Which is why so I asked what about is the cause? scalability, because to what extent? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, now here's what's interesting. This is not talked about much, but there's something called Mox principle. Have you heard of Mox principle? No, but I'm very excited if you could okay, explain Okay, so Mox principle, Mox principle suggests that what happens locally is determined or maybe determined is not the right word, but influenced sure. by the global conditions. So for example, if you were to spin yourself around, just put your arms on, you spin yourself around and you look at the stars, you see the stars spinning, but you're, you, sorry, your arms are pulled apart, or your arms are pulled apart. But then you wonder, well, if everything is quote unquote relative, like Einstein suggests and Galileo suggests, then what is it about, then how do you know that you're the one that's spinning and this it's not the stars that are spinning around you? Like how does your arm? How do your arms know to fling outward? So Mach would say that the you need in the local that is you spinning your arms around. You right. actually need to incorporate the conditions of the entire distribution of stars. The Einstein thought about this tremendously, and that's part of what influenced general relativity, is that the space-time metric you need to have a metric of the entire universe. You it's don't just measure one small part. Differentiable, I believe that's the the term differentiable implying that like the consistency of that metric i don't know i, I apologize sure. sorry sorry man i'm so sorry no, no, so that's sorry. all right that's all right that's all right but regardless so yeah. einstein used that to einstein was heavily influenced by mock's principle so mock's principle again suggests that something local is influenced by the global and and i i watched a bit of your conversation with dan and Dan said something that I used to resonate with that I no longer do, which is that all truths that are said in many religions are like different viewpoints of the same elephant. And I used to say, I, I even say this to myself. I don't, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if everything is true, though. I do think that everything can be incorporated in the same way, in a, in a sense, it's like an extension. It's a philosophical mox principle mm. that for some truth to be true here, you need to incorporate the other truths. It's not the same. They're not all true. Right. They need to be incorporated in some manner. So the Toe Project, which the Toe Channel, the Theories of Everything Channel, in some sense is is trying to do that. Though I I never have articulated it in an in in a in an unblurred manner like this. Bringing all of those slices of the metaphorical pie or pizza in a in an attempted conjecture. Yes. Right. Yes, like an attempted reconciliation between opposing practices, principles, and right. and rituals, even. So it's not just all propositional. It could be procedural and perspectival, and 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 participatory. So that's a John Verveckian term. We tend to think of beliefs as just propositional. I think the philosophical definition of beliefs is a proposition which one which one thinks is true. But I don't know if beliefs are. And not that I don't know. It's not 
in cognitive science, beliefs aren't as simple as just propositions. Mm. Beliefs are also enacted. And so that means that one can be wrong about their beliefs. And that's why you hear someone like, well, that's why you hear the claim that perhaps atheists aren't atheists because they suggest that they are with their words, but then with their bodies, they act differently. I don't know if I wholesale buy that. I see it as true in some sense and not true in another, but the fact that I can see it as true in some sense means that there's a contradiction between the propositions and the procedural. This is, thank, Matt, thank you, exactly. This is exactly where I'm at myself with respects to that idea of scalability because it's like okay to what extent can we can can something be observed within a confined state that is local and contextual to that state and how does one even define the parameters of the event of that state and then on again zooming out on the macro even zooming in on the micro to what extent do the variables if any if at all of that state begin or end to other points, sort of like um, a, a slinky. When you look at a slinky, if you take it uh, and you put it on a table, you know, placed in it in the way that it is together, and you say walk to the other end of the room, it just looks like a, for example, a you know, a, a aluminum metal cylinder, if you will. But if you walk closer to the slinky, you notice then the slinky is comprised of multiple rings. Mm, you pick, mm, you pick mm, up the mm, slinky, mm. you then expand the slinky, and realize, mm -hmm. oh wow, these rings are are far more in depth, in detail than I thought if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, what's super interesting that I, I find fun to think about is, so what you referred to there is, is like the difference between something that's higher dimensional being viewed from a, a different. So in that, in that sense, it was a, it was a, a bleary view from afar. Right. But then you can also think of it in terms of flatlanders while well, they see a circle here and then it's disappears circle here, circle here, circle here, circle here. Right. And, and so then one is, well, what one is doing in that scenario is thinking of something that has more information from from a point of view where there's less access to that information. So 2D space viewing yes. something three-dimensional or you from afar, and then you have to compress what you right. see and you compress it as one continuous medium. Right. What I think is interesting, and that's something that physicists, physicists do plenty with string theory, for example, and positing extra dimensions, which I don't find that to be that absurd. I know many people do. I don't, I don't see why, but neither do I. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, I don't care too much if the universe is 200 dimensional, right? It, it doesn't, that doesn't matter too much to me, but I, I understand that it matters to plenty of people. I find it fun, but I also find it more fun instead of thinking, how do we get our, how do we recover our four dimensional space from something which is higher than four dimensional? I think it's much more fun to think of how do we emerge a four-dimensional space from what is less dimensional. So that's the approach of loop quantum gravity, which yes. is actually one dimension. You can think of it as one-dimensional chains on a, on a, on a, uh, on armor, like chain link, which, right. is, which are actually one-dimensional loops, but they, they've spanned a two-dimensional surface and even three-dimensional when you put right. it on. Right. So right. I think that's much, I think that's super interesting. How do you recover something four-dimensional from what was lower rather than thinking, how do you project down from a higher dimensional state down to a, a lower one. I want to, uh, sorry, right before, I, I don't mean to nerd out in this regard, but now that you've, that I, that I can tell that we're, we're um, speaking the same language mm -hmm, here, mm -hmm. this, you had someone on, forgive me, I believe a computer scientist, I may be incorrect, a handful of months ago, where he basically had uh, his postulation. David Walpart. Possibly. I think so when he said sure, that sure, sure. there cannot be in his humble view and I really took this into consideration with respects to that angle of scalability there cannot be a theory of everything or a unified field theory because once you you you've comprised the fundamental you know uh, 
states of that theory if we were to metaphorically or literally zoom in what comprises those theories and then what comprises those and that to me that speaks to that idea of scalability and so he had said without putting words in his mouth i think it was mr wolpar where he goes there can't be a theory of everything in my view kurt because then you have unexplained theories to then explain the theory that you've just explained do you see what i'm saying and mm. then you have to keep going which speaks to the idea for me potentially of uh, you know fractals uh cymatics you name it but again not not to confuse but yeah mm-hmm If if I understand what David was David Walpart, if it's even David Walpart, because I don't, I if I understand it correctly, what it could be my fault. For, for no, 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 I, this it's most likely my fault. I don't recall. So if I so many of our theories of the universe are developed from looking at it on the small scale and then extending to the outward to sorry to the large scale and it's unclear to me how much that can be extended so for example we think of the universe well we don't there are different models but one can think of the universe as a closed system but then where do you get this idea of closed because closed is is relative to an external part so we have thermodynamics and generally to make the math and the physics simpler one does thermodynamics in closed systems so that you don't have leakages of energy and so on and then you start to generalize and you say that, well, in a closed system, that's when entropy increases to its maximum. But why do you think you can apply what happens to a closed system to the entire universe? Why do you think you can apply what happens to a, from a subset to the entire set? That's not clear to me. And additionally, Wolpart suggests that the, to model the entire universe can't be done within a subset of the universe because the subset of the universe is a part of the universe and it would have to have a model of itself and in doing so it in doing so there's there's some i there it, it's it's it can't it just can't predict it would be fractalized so you would be observing the universe in a fractalized state while tr while simultaneously trying to comprise the the entire composition of not just that state but the states even surrounding it if that makes sense yeah now this term fractal is used synonymously with self-similarity but mm. just so you know and well just so you know the a general fractal most fractals aren't self-similar for there to be a fractal you just need a certain dimension to be higher than another dimension so topological dimension which is what we refer to when we say one two three d four d five d right has the has to be lower than what's called a Hausdorff dimension, which is a technical term. But as soon as you have that, you have a fractal, and most fractals aren't self-similar. And I, I know that I'm just making that clear because many I people appreciate use them inter interchangeably. Yeah. And if the universe was, well, if the universe is fractal-like, I don't I don't know. I don't I don't know what happens if you have two different. See, this is tricky. But if you have so a fractal has. In a sense, it has infinite. It's this false. Oh, I, so I was about to say. Let me just falsely say. Sure, sure. Okay. In a sense, the fractal has infinite information in any finite volume because it's because it's it, it's jagged at the edges. When you zoom in, there's more refinement and right, so on. Right. Right. Okay. Now that's false. The one the re, the way the reason that that's false is because it's generated by just a single line of code. Like all of this complexity is generated by a simple equation. Okay. So the information there is actually just what 
is required to produce this object. Ah, I see. But yes. then, but what I was going to say is that, well, what happens when you have two different fractals interacting? Because then you have, then to me that would, but I haven't thought about this much, but then to me that would have to have some, that would have to have infinite information because, because at every single point and well, I don't know how to explain this, but it, but if I you can imagine you. zooming in, zooming in, okay. Yep, I got you, hundred percent. Okay, so then, so if the universe was fractal-like, then it has to be unified as a fractal, unless there's infinite information, because then you have two different fractals interacting. So, mm. so when people say that the universe is fractal-like, to me that also implies that it's it has to be just one fractal, simple equation, unless you get infinite, unless you have infinite information, and then you have black holes. And so on, which we don't seem to have around us, but but I don't know because I haven't formulated that. And I'm sure there are ways of getting you, around what I just said. Speaking to that, are you familiar by chance, Kurt, with um, with Oliver Heaviside, Heinrich Hertz, and James Maxwell's uh, interpretations of Mr. Maxwell's equations? Um, the different, you know, the g potential being removed, the g variable rather representing potentials being removed by uh, after Mr. Maxwell's death. By chance, if not, no, no worries. No, I know that this is what Pius referred to plenty, that he didn't like the heavy side version. I don't know. I don't know if the G potential that, that you're referring to is the same as the A potential, which is used in, in electrodynamics, which is there anyway. So mm. I don't know. I don't know. Got you. Got you. Okay. Um, with that said, I did want to. I did have two more questions for you, and uh, hopefully a little bit um, easier on on the mind. And uh, I thank you so much for even entertaining and indulging me for the past uh, for the past hour on the, this these type of topics. Um, your conversation with Mister uh, Jacques Vallée and Mister Gary Nolan, two separate conversations, but very simply, what you took away from in regardless of the order you want to address them in, uh, what you took away from the conversations with with those gentlemen. Well, with ballet, it's simple. I don't remember much. Now, I keep saying this over and over. Well, partly that's because I I, I tend to speak as precisely as I can, and I tend to follow this guy named Wittgenstein who said, of what one cannot speak of precisely, one should be silent. <laughs> so partly that's just me. I appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm in agreement in that regard, too. If I don't know it, uh, I won't say. So yeah, right. That's partly me following his, following in the footsteps of him. But then, it's also because whenever I interview someone, I prep generally. I prep heavily. Now for the initial UFO interviews, I had such a paucity of data. I still do. It's not. It's not yeah. like the UFO scene is, is, is abound in data points. Right. But. Well, that's the whole criticism of it, which to me is, is well, even that's false. But <laughs> we think alike, man. By the way, the reason I'm laughing is not at you; it's that I think very similarly when when I when I consider these these the, when I ponder these thoughts. So let me give an explanation as to why I think that, in some way, that's false. It's because one already has a paradigm of what what, what what constitutes evidence. So when someone says, let's just talk about consciousness, and someone says, well, consciousness is is not physical, like we can feel it, and that's not a that's not entirely physics based. 
And then someone says, well, where's the evidence? And then you point to your own experience and then they say, well, that's not, where's the physical evidence of it being non-physical? Well, what you've done is you've circumscribed and then you've said anything that's outside the circle doesn't count. So what's outside the circle? Then, then you're pointing to objects outside the circle to say, yeah, but that's not inside the circle. Right. right. So you've just defined away the problem. In when it comes to evidence, well, the analogy here is, well, what counts as evidence? Okay, anyway, then with the unfledged nature of the initial UFO interviews, I, I don't and didn't feel bad about how my knowledge is so limited in that domain, because I feel like there was still some contribution by asking what are sophomoric and cosmetic questions to an expert in the same way that asking about what are what's an undergraduate concept like a compact set or a or a differential form to the top mathematician his name is Terry Tao asking him fairly vacuous questions like that actually lead to a different understanding of the objects because and that's by the way the whole the whole reason that graduates are told to read the Feynman lectures on physics is not because they're, they're arduous and formidable books, but because they're, the rudimentary questions explain differently. So I don't mind too much that I'm asking people like Jacques Vallée or George Knapp or Lou Elizondo, so on, fairly fatuous questions because well, sometimes there's something that can be gleaned from this childlike perspective by asking an expert. Right. Actually, oftentimes that's the case. But anyway, right. that's not to justify it. I, I, the whole point was to say that. So I asked some fairly rudimentary questions to Jacques Vallée and so on. And then you're asking me, well, what did I take away? Well. When I prepare for a podcast, I, I prep heavily like it's a test. I have it, and then I don't return to it. That's part of my problem. That's something that I'm solving right now, is I need to then cohere all of the disparate pieces of knowledge, because otherwise they just fall through. It's like a sieve. It's like I'm filling up water mm. into a, a bucket which has holes. And so I need to go back, and I haven't done that. So when you ask me, what did I learn? What did I take away? It's, it's difficult. It's at a pre-verbal sure, stage. Yeah. It's not easy to discern. Absolutely, okay, now as yeah. for Gary Nolan, mm -hmm. what I took away from that as a meta level, just as podcasters between you and I, is that I, I tend to prefer those, like the Gary Nolan, the Salvatore Pius and the Diana Pasolka interview, I consider to be my top UFO interviews. And the reason is that I'm doing them offline and I can think and I can relax and I don't have to take questions from the audience. Right. I have my own questions and I'm there in real time and you can see me, it's like ping pong. It's like a tennis match between people. This it's, is, why do you think I wanted to do it like this? Yeah, with you and yes, I. Yes, right, yeah. rather than yeah. rather than online. And then you're constantly checking the chat and having to ask questions and you're distracted and they're so not a whole entirely your own, of your own creation. So in the future, I'll probably do that continually. So with Salvatore Pius, for example, I have a plan to interview him in person at some point when he can, right now he can't. And for Gary Nolan, I would like to speak to him again. It'll be offline. And what I took away most, much like the Sal interview, maybe you want to know more about the physics of the UFOs and so on. But what I took away was 
was something from Sal's interview was something about heart. What I took away from Gary's interview was something about about conducting podcasts, but also also about the nature of speculation in science, where most uh, this will send me on a huge rant and a tangent. So I'll, I just won't go there. I'll give you the cliff note. Most people who consider themselves to be the rational scientists who quote unquote follow only the evidence, they dislike the speculative aspect to these interviews. I see Toe as being on, this is too self-aggrandizing, but there's something, there's a word called the cutting edge. It's not on the cutting edge because I don't think it's on the cutting can edge. I, sorry, but can I would I, say it's on the bleeding edge. I, I yeah. would say, if I, if I may give my, my two cents as a sure, big sure, fan sure. Of, of your channel, it is on the precipice of different observational states of interpretation, of different of different theories, proposals, hypothesis, uh, hypotheses, uh, postulations, you name it. So I think it's not too self-aggrandizing for you to say that. Again, if I can refer back to what I said earlier, you're, you're doing... And this is also a compliment to yourself, brother. You're doing a fantastic job of bringing all the slices or as many as you could of that metaphorical pie or pizza together to be able to not particularly say, hey, guys, you know, uh, to, to, to the world, if you will, this is a, for example, we've come up with so-and-so in this order chronologically, and this is a unified field theory, but rather to say, this is what we can all interpret different differently, which to me speaks philosophically to, you know, the joy is in the journey. Um, you know, you may have an app on you. I said this to uh, Elizondo and Mr. Cahill that you um, you may have a, your text messaging app on the home page of your phone. I may have it on the bottom dock on the second row or something like this. We both have different ways of getting there, but we still get to the same app nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. you're, I think your show does a beautiful job of that. I really do. And so I don't think it's too self-aggrandizing for you to to um, humbly and, and knowing your personality as well too for, to humbly state that it's it's doing something of that sort not particularly giving a definitive solidified conclusion to anything but rather opening up the possibilities of that that speculative potentiality not proof but potentiality if that makes sense right and i i agree and i also say that that's a deficit of the program so what's its pro is also its con and and that what i'm well, that speaks what to duality. To yes. Yeah. What Toa is, is not trying to do is to is to speak to a conservative center or to be a conservative center or to make inc incremental steps. It's it's a, a liberal, and not in the political sense, but in the cognitive sense. It's a, a liberal examination of the boundaries. So Thomas Kuhn, I'm sure you've heard of, had this idea of paradigm shifts in science and that every decade or a few decades, there's a radical departure in what we thought of as the model of the world. And then you wonder, well, how do how does one get to that point? Well, to me, one gets to that by constantly pushing the confinements of those theories, perhaps. by following one's hunches and instincts and then suggesting what is ridiculous over and over and throwing throwing paper at the wall or i don't think paper is the right word toilet paper that's wet uh, throwing gotcha. objects at the wall and seeing oh, what sticks just seeing what sticks yeah 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 yes and so that's that's how it's done on the bleeding edge and, and so i would say that 
but then there's obviously, like I mentioned, there's a deficit to that. There's a con to that. There's a detriment, sorry, to that, which is that you, you have to be careful because you can't be too unmoored. Otherwise you go off and there's extreme danger. And yeah, I think I've talked about this, at least for myself, psychologically, there's extreme danger in having an open mind, which hasn't been talked about by almost anyone that I've seen. And at least not in the non-clinical setting. So, so there is a, there should be warning signs. There should be danger signs to the, to each toe episode, <laughs> or at least in the description. So I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I yes. Okay. No, no, wor no ah, worries, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. No, I, I, I appreciate that a ton. Um, I really do because it, it speaks to this idea of really like, and please forgive me, please tell me if you think that I'm interpreting this incorrectly, but honing in on the very basic fundamental concepts and then without making leaps and bounds without, again, any, uh, again, I think this is also dangerous to make such leaps and bounds without any type of evidentiary basis of any kind, but to, to sort of, it's a, it's a fine line. I know what you mean between just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks metaphorically and pushing the limits of, you know, for example, a, a confined set of parameters that can in observable states be proven. I, I know what you're saying. It's a yes, fine line. And, right. I agree. And I would also say that there, that it, it also depends on what one considers to be evidence. Like you said, you're completely right. disentangled from the evidence, but, but, but dreams can count as evidence. So, well, sorry, not evidence, but as directions to be pursued. So that's why I think that the innovation will come from the fringes, but then be actually made explicit by the center because you need the rigor. So hopefully what I'm trying to right. do is a, a bit of a balance of both because you can't simply say that, well, consciousness is like a black hole. I remember someone emailed this to me and they're using these flowery metaphors. And then I suggested, well, actually consciousness is like a white hole because the white hole is what gives out and then right. they're like ah oh, yes and then they, they made a whole document suggesting it's a white hole and then i thought you know what actually no the black hole fits more and then they're like yeah actually black so then almost any metaphor can work okay now when i was referring to the what counts as evidence well dreams in the sense of in the sense of serving as the inspiration for exploring rigorously that happened in the case of the watson and crick i believe or for the no for the benzene for the benzene molecule like the snake there are many accounts of this Ramanu, ramanujan who's a mathematician was inspired heavily and sometimes even solely by the god by goddesses and and meditative practices imbuing in him baroque mathematical formulas which then need to be proved but right. at least they can serve as the inspiration so it depends on what one counts as, as, and so I want to say that it's entirely fruitless to be disembroiled from the physical evidence because you can be instigated by something that's inside, like an instinct or a, mm. or a hunch or, or your temperament or a dream or, well, I'll say, et cetera, the synonyms of that sign. I mean, sorry, Seinfeld. Einstein, <laughs> Einstein, by the way, was criticized for modifying space and time too much. I don't know if you know this, but when he first came out with special relativity, someone named Lawrence, who I'm sure you've heard of in Lawrence contractions, yes. Lawrence said, 
that there must be a physical mechanism for the for space contraction and time dilation. It's don't modify space time. That's way too much of a step. Like dial it back, Einstein. Even in I think 1920s or so, or 19 late 1910s, I forgot when Einstein earned his Nobel or was awarded the Nobel Prize. Even Max Planck wrote to the Nobel Committee and said, don't hold his views on space-time against him. Like just award it for the photoelectric effect. But he's he's a bit off kilter when it comes to the modification of space-time. Well, it turned out to be true. And then you could wonder, well, we have the the luxury of hindsight to say, well, Einstein was correct in following his hunch. And it wasn't too much of a hunch because there was evidence. Yeah, but this trail toward evidence is a, is a retrodiction. It's something that's made about the past afterward. It's an inference made about the past afterwards. Right. And, and if I could say philosophically, that speaks to, and even in a visual sense, it speaks to this concept of, I mean, it, without getting too specific, like a, a, a toroid field, if you will, a constant cycling, a constant reoccurring or re, reobservation, um, reobserving of that duality state, if you will, this idea of don't go too far, but at the same time, it's like, how do we not go too far while attempting to again relative to the evidence and, and you know equations and knowledge of the time in a more solidified sense push the limits so to speak but then even that again to your point even I'm, I'm on the same page with you that speaks to the the idea of this this confinement because again please forgive me if I'm incorrect here I believe that Einstein in his theory of general relativity used the Levy Cavita or Levy Chavita a metric in order to sort of postulate amongst many other things that that sense of again like what you were just saying expansion and, and meddling with with the space-time metric and turns out it was correct and so the question becomes to what should there even be a sort of um uh, set of uh, dare i say observational standards to notify and or alert someone if you will when they're going quote unquote too far but then the question becomes to me even to what extent is what too far because then we mm -hmm. go back to what you just said about how Einstein, they were like, don't take it seriously. And then it turns out looking back, holy shit, he was right. <laughs> also, when just discussing these topics in an absence of physical evidence, how, and look, many people, most people, most scientists would agree that finding microbial life on another, on another planet would be one of the monumental discoveries of the human of, of human existence, not just of the past decade or century. Right. So, so what if we're, what if something much more profound is occurring? And then you wonder, well, there's no physical evidence. Well, how do we find the physical evidence without discussing this topic? And how do we motivate people to find it? Right. Right. What, what, just curious, what would a, um, I, I know that you have to take off shortly and I, I promise this is the, the last question to that. What, what, um, what would be the rebuttal to what you just said there from professors, academics that seem to want to work within, which I'm not against, but work within a confined state of quote unquote provable, um, uh, I guess you could say states or functions. What would their, their rebuttal be to, we can't go too far out there type thing, if that makes sense. They would probably suggest something like, I think it was the, I think it was Kant who suggested that morality should be what you can, what if quote unquote, everyone did it, then it would still be okay. Emmanuel so Kant they would, or Kant. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that they would say, well, what if everyone in science did this extreme speculation 
and discussing of unfounded claims, then where would we be? I think that would be their claim. I think that would be their rebuttal. Mm, right, because that speaks to a few well. Then my then my rebuttal is well, not everyone's doing that. There's a certain temperament that allows for that, and right. and channels like yours, channels like mine, that we aren't speaking to the. I keep saying this, but I don't mean it in a political sense, the conservative center. We're not right. speaking to them. We're speaking to an, an open temperament, a, a liberal, liberal with regard to ideas, a, a liberal mindset. Right. And, and, and they would also, the Neil deGrasse Tyson types would say that there's a, that it's removed from replicable data and, and that this is not accessible to the public. And all of that's true. Right. So, yeah. But at the same time, you have to think about where are they deriding the whole department of philosophy? Right. Almost all of the philosophical department has zero data to support their claims. Zero data. Right. So then, and then yeah. So they, they already have a certain mindset they dislike. And, and I think that they just, I think that much of it is extremely emotionally laden that they don't want to be seen as these backward religious hillbillies. And that's that's at the back of their mind at any given point, that they have a position on a social hierarchy on in the in the the midst of the savants that they worship intellectually. Right. And they don't want to be seen as some as somewhere lower on that academic hierarchy. It's a, it's a scholarly form of intellectual posturing. And, and to that, to that, and it, I wow, that was very well said, a scholarly form of intellectual posturing. So it would be the idea, like, for example, again, I want to be clear to both yourself, sir, and to the audience that this is a purely hypothetical example, but say, you know, um, Kurt brings on to his, his great show, uh, you know, a, a professor that's in their, say, let's just say hypothetically in their 80s in age, and they've spent multiple decades um, f focusing on a particular set of theorems and, you know, postulating axioms within those theories and all that, and all of a sudden you have... Uh, you know, they're, they're on your show, they're doing their thing, they're explaining their theory, their hypothesis, and then here comes Mr. Kurt Jaimungle, which please don't, I'm not trying to to degrade you relative to this this hypothetical you person. You can degrade. No, 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 I, no a, not, a, not at all. Man. I'm a masochist, so <laughs> um, turn me on. <laughs> here comes, you know, 34-year-old uh, Kurt Jaimungle, you know, poking a, a legitimate hole in... 80 odd year old professor so-and-so's hypothesis that they've then spent their whole life on and so to me that again for layman's terms of simplicity that speaks to ego very simply mm. and and that's mm -hmm. that, that that i i think i i very slightly and maybe this is incorrect of me but i, I sympathize to a very slight extent because i i, I want to put myself in their shoes of like they've they've spent decades pursuing particular paths but at the same time I hate to be like this because it sounds very, I guess you could say narcissistic or conceited of me, but if someone's proven wrong, they're proven wrong, <laughs> you know, regardless of how much time was put into that, that hypothesis, if you will. So my, my whole thing is, again, speaking to that intellectual posturing in the social hierarchy of things, it's like, to what extent are a handful of academics just going, no, th this is incorrect because they don't want, they feel threatened, if that makes sense. I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, it's agree. not. Uh, by yeah. the way, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Continue. Continue. No, I'm. I'm not looking even for an answer. Just throwing thoughts out at this point. But think about this. This is something I think about fairly frequently. Let's say on a weekly basis. I think that 
if something turns out to be true about this UFO phenomenon, I don't think that the UFO community will have any credit that's deserved to them. I think mm. that they'll still be disparaged and disesteemed and sneered at by the likes of people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, even though I'm just choosing his name. I don't think that he's as contumelious as I make him seem. But the the reasoning goes like this. Let's imagine that Bigfoot turned out to be true. Let's just take the case of Bigfoot. Sure. Then instead of instead of people will forget about the tens of thousands of people who had experience who had experiences with Bigfoot and they'll just focus on, oh, there's evidence for Bigfoot now. The community won't get an apology. It'll it'll it, it'll it'll maybe get some recognition vaguely as well there look there are some historical people who believed in this but it won't be it won't, it won't be yeah. it's some press conference where people say yeah you all were right for so much longer than we were and we were too arrogant and supercilious to acknowledge it and we apologize it would be seen as a as a as a testament to yeah well what you should do is still follow the physical evidence because now what we found was physical evidence of bigfoot or ufos in, in the analogy and and rather than suggesting that what we should do as scientists is re-examine what we consider to be evidence because so many millions and or at least hundreds of thousands of people had this intuition far before they were profoundly correct right rather than than meaning that they're to be repudiated for following some nebulous form of quote unquote evidence that that we should reevaluate what we consider to be evidence. I'm losing my train of thought, but basically but you don't see what's happening. Like for example, if I could if I could very and I say this respectfully to Mr. Mr. Eric Weinstein, he tweeted out a few a handful of months ago, he said to the UFO community, I'm sorry. He blatantly came out and I respect that. He came out and said, I'm sorry, I was for you know quite some time I was incorrect and I dismissed this field as something of nonsense or what have you. He goes to all of you, I apologize. You but you're basically saying you don't see that happening if anything comes out of the UAP field relative to the rest of academia or a good chunk of academia. No, and you can also think of it like, generally augers don't get the credit. So for example, Nietzsche doesn't get credit for predicting that there would be some disastrous effects of following a secular religion in the abandonment of God. And, and there were a few other people who said similar sentiments. So people who are historical, who have some insight profound, deep insight, they don't get much credit. Instead, what you say as an academic is, well, there are several thousands of people who made predictions. Some of them are going to be correct. Mm. So you, you rarely get an admission of following an incorrect path from a scholar. That's what I see. Now, Eric Weinstein is an extreme exception to that, but Eric's an exception in many ways. Right. So Eric's an, <clears throat> Eric's an interesting person. Right, got you. Well, with, with that said, Kurt, I want to thank you so, so much, man, for your time. I want to thank you for coming on and for even entertaining such um, such questions and, and um, exploring hypotheses and these different ideas. And please, I know that, um, again, I want to apologize if I phrased any of the questions in a way that just truly didn't make sense or, or anything like I apologize like this. for not understanding them. And by oh. the way, I also want to say that the people that, are, that comprise the UFO community, they... 
tend to not care too much about exoneration or punishment. Right. They just care about the quote unquote truth. As far as I can tell, the majority of them. And that's not like myself. Like I'm much more of a selfish person. So I'm projecting plenty of how I would feel dismayed and, and so on onto them. But they're much more much more selfless and kind hearted than than myself. Got so you. Much Got of you. much of what I said maybe doesn't matter to them. Ah, got you. And and with that said as well, would you be willing to let my audience know, although I'm sure that a good chunk of my audience is familiar with your work, yourself, your show, but where you could be found? I'm sure there's a handful that maybe aren't. Sure. There's a channel called Theories of Everything. And what that channel is about, it's more of a project than a podcast. It's an attempt to understand the variegated landscape of toes, so theories of everything, from a mathematical perspective from a mathematical and physics based perspective. So that is the original conception of what a theory of everything is in the sense of unifying gravity and the standard model. But then also the theory of everything can be interpreted more broadly and philosophically as well, what are the laws that well, if one wants to be reductionist, what are the laws that 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 bring us here? I I, I don't know if the reductionism is the correct frame, but let me just adopt that for now. So what are the laws such that what we see here at the large scale limit, they derive from something lower, whether consciousness is fundamental or, or, or whatever it may be. The podcast, the project, let's say, is about explicating those. So making them explicit and then trying to understand them and, and relate them as well as seeing. So there's physical tools, cognitive tools, like let's say John Verbeke, Ian McGilchrist, I would consider them to be cognitive tools. And, and there are people who, what I call rows, so resoners of existence. I, I think this may be the first time that I'm saying that aloud. They're, they're the people who have unexampled views of reality. They're metaphysical. They don't, they don't repudiate non-secular forms of spirituality. And they have a flair for rigor. So people like Bach and John Verveke mm. and Bernardo Castrop and Carl Friston and Michael Levin. Those are what I call resoners of existence. Now, resoner is a term from filmmaking or art in general, which means to voice the central theme. So I see them as, as viewing this life, if one can view this life as a play, and trying to voice the central themes and the motifs and contend with existence. Yeah, that's so, not, sorry, that, that I would say, in my humble opinion, I would I appreciate you differentiating that from reductionism because I, I, I humbly think that they may not be the same, but I s certainly see precisely what you're saying. Yes, yes, that's right. I don't think that, I don't, I don't think that, for example, so I have a list here of the resoners of existence and it's just fun for me because to me, I think about, there's something in mathematics called associativity and then there's something called non-associativity. So I see the, the, the rows as a non-associative philosophical rat pack. So I love that because I'm a big fan of Levin and particularly Friston's, Friston's uh, work. But I, I really appreciate how you asked uh, Professor Friston, I believe, or Mr. Friston, uh, how he sort of handles and decompresses in a mental sense the potential from the potential anxieties of, of these, these very taxing um, concepts because they are. They, they really are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, a conversation coming up with Michael Levin and Carl Friston, and we talk about this very, this very topic. There's much that happened behind the scenes that I can't say aloud. Well, right. I, one of them, one or more of them, weren't comfortable with me sharing certain aspects, but, but it was 
great conversation. So I just want to read off a list of the resonors of existence before sure. I got to get going, if you don't mind. Please. So I would consider Chris Langan to be the one to be a, a row, Michael Levin, Thomas Campbell, Joshua Bach, Roger Penrose, who I haven't interviewed. So these aren't just people who are on the Toe channel. Greg Henriques, who I haven't interviewed. And, and much of my much of the time people propose certain individuals for me to interview and i think yes they have a toe but are they a role uh, right. perhaps not perhaps no right so that's that's you awesome. can think of the toe channel to wrap this all up the toe channel is there to explicate toes by interviewing roles awesome love it i truly truly appreciate it and i want to thank everyone for uh, coming out to either watch or listen to this of course on my end whether it's on uh, youtube uh, apple pod apple I use I said Apple Spotify, Apple Podcasts, mm -hmm. or Spotify, or Podbean. So thank you so very much as per as always, everyone who came out to watch or listen. And Kurt, brother, it's been an honor, and uh, it's been a, a very very um, incredible conversation. And I thank you so very much from from the bottom of my heart, man. Thank you. Well, I thank you for inviting me, man. I appreciate that. And uh, also, theories of everything is on Spotify, so I didn't say where you could find a YouTube and all the audio platforms as well yeah man i appreciate you inviting me out i didn't know you're a fellow canadian yeah i didn't know you're a fellow torontonian yeah yeah exactly yeah so it's, it's 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 awesome to see uh again the 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 similarities resonate in that regard but uh thank you so much man